And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. You remember probably from a, oh, about two weeks ago now, we talked about the Great Halifax Explosion. This is a story, uh, 1917. Uh, and I said at that time... Uh, that we would be back to discuss it again because we were approaching the 100-year anniversary of the explosion on December 6th. But we couldn't quite do it on the 6th, but we're delighted to be able to invite back the author of the Great Halifax Explosion, John U. Bacon. John uh, is uh, author of uh, five New York Times bestsellers. He uh, often appears on NPR and national television. He teaches at University of Michigan. And it's great to have you back, John. Thanks. Al, great to be back. You've got a lot of friends out there, by the way. Thank I heard you. from a lot of friends after yeah. my last appearance here, so uh, you have reach. Uh, thank you. It's good to know. Uh, I know listeners are very responsive uh, to great stories, and this is a great story. Oh, thank you. Let's, let's talk about it because uh, even though we spent time two weeks ago discussing it, listeners, some listeners may not have been there. Let's go over some of this, some of the details. This is uh, – there's a, a – a ship, uh, the Mont Blanc, that leaves New York mm-hmm. on December 1st, I think it is. That is correct. Right? Yep. And it's loaded with uh, 3,000 pounds. 3,000 tons. 3,000 tons. <laughs> yes, excuse me. <laughs> 3,000 tons. Which is worse. Of munitions, <laughs> right. And it's especially volatile. Explain why. Sure. Uh, and this time we talked about this last time. We had a good chat, of course. This time we're going to spend... Probably a little quicker on the explosion and talk right. more about Christmas 1917 yeah. right. and the reaffirmations that everyone had. Uh, this thing explodes on December 6th. The next 19 days were incredible. How they handled Christmas that year was quite amazing and really reassuring. But how they got there, of course, is uh, December 1st, as you point out. This ship leaves Gravesend Bay, New York, appropriately named. Um, with 6 million pounds of TNT and picric acid. This stuff is very volatile, and it's used to uh, put into shells to bomb German soldiers. So, I mean, this, is, this was the A-bomb of its time, yeah. basically, yeah. Uh, as fierce as it got. So 6 million pounds to frame that is uh, 13 times the weight of the Statue of Liberty. So all in one <laughs> ship. And, it, yeah, you're not messing around at wow. that point. So you're trying to hold up the Western Front of World War I because the Russians have left the war, so... There's no longer an eastern front, so they're terrified of the Germans plowing through France, basically. Mm-hmm. So this ship is designed to help stop that. Um, on its way, of course, it stops in Halifax. It is dying to get into the harbor on the morning of December 6th, a Thursday, 1917. And this other ship, Emo, from Norway, is dying to get out. Right. Now, this ship is empty. It is a relief ship, uh, ironically enough. It is designed to go to New York, grab relief supplies for those who have been bombed uh, in Belgium and elsewhere in France to help them. So one ship's dying to get in, one ship's dying to get out, and now you've got basically a game of chicken. I was going to say. It's not good. This, this, uh, the captain of the uh, Emo uh, was speeding. That's right. <laughs> he, in short, he was speeding. Yeah. When you see the, the water froth up you know, with bubbles in front of the bow, that is not a good sign in the harbor. It's supposed yeah. to be slow moving. Now, how did the uh, uh, commander of the Mont Blanc handle that? At the first stage, probably about as well as you could. Okay. Now, the second stage we'll get to. But uh, um, he was hugging the right 
uh, shoulder of, the, if you will, the, the shoreline of the uh, Narrows. The Narrows is this bottleneck of this harbor. It's yeah. basically a two-lane road amidst a highway. And uh, so he's going slowly, and he's hugging the shore. The emo captain is doing none of these things. He has no idea what Mont Blanc's got on it, of course. Mm-hmm. So he keeps on passing ships on the left, the way you might on a two-lane road. Mm-hmm. And, Al, you're probably a pretty safe driver. If you keep on passing cars on the left, sooner or later you're going to find a car going your way in exactly. your lane, and now you're trapped. Right. Uh, and that's just what happened here. So Mont Blanc has one blast on his horn to let the emo know he's shocked to see him in his lane, shocked to see him bearing down. And one blast means nautical terms. I'm in my lane, I'm on the right course, and I'm staying the course. And uh, emo comes back with two blasts, which means I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not what you want to hear. So Mont Blanc can't believe that he's hearing this. So he comes back again with one long singular blast, which means, again, I'm in the right. And again, Emo comes back with two blasts saying, I don't care. And so now if you're the Mont Blanc captain and you know what you've got in that ship and Emo has no idea, what do you do? It's yeah. like a game of chicken on the highway. Right, right. At some point, you don't care what lane is whose. You just need to get out of the way. Yeah. And so at the last second, Mont Blanc veers hard to port to the left-hand side, which is right in the middle of the harbor. And that's the exact same moment, sadly, that Emo does the same thing. I see. And so it also backs up. It finally gets some sense and backs up. Now you've got two ships suddenly pointing wow. toward the middle of the harbor. Emo hits Mount Blanc, uh, not that hard by standards of World War One. not a big collision, but it's enough to knock over the airplane fuel on top of all these explosives. Uh, it lights, and the French crew says, we're out of here. They hop in two rowboats and go the opposite direction and don't warn anybody, crucially. So there's no lifting of the red flag uh, that signals. The, e- even the, that on the way out the door, you know, off, off the ship. Yeah. The red flag means munitions. Uh, they're afraid to fly that sooner. That would have saved thousands of lives, probably. Wow. Um, so that does not happen. And this is where, again, they were not guilty about the collision, but they are guilty here, I mm-hmm. think. Um, now you've got a ghost ship. It's 8.46 in the morning. It's on fire. It does not ignite, surprisingly. It does not blow up right away, um, which is also kind of cruel, it turns out. Yeah. And that ship yeah. lands perfectly into Pier 6 at the base of Halifax Harbor. It's a perfect landing with nobody on board, Nobody's amazingly. On board. And I imagine everybody's coming out to see it. That's the other problem, Al. Exactly right. Uh, it's 8.46 in the morning, and it burns until 9.04. And they have no idea what's on this ship. So all the guys going to their factories, going to their offices, the uh, kids going to school. And you've got uh, St. Joe's. You've got Richmond Public School, uh, three or four schools in that area. Uh, all the moms have finished breakfast. Are in, you know, Franklin's yeah. cells are still burning. They all walk to the bay windows. No one knows what's on it, and it's an amusement at this point. Yeah. It turns out to be the largest explosion in human history until the atom bomb and the devastation went what a mile in each direction two and a half square miles yeah incredibly so when it finally ignites at 904.35 we know the exact time of this thing uh in one fifteenth of a second which is five times faster than it takes to blink uh, the hold, the temperature of the hold, the Mont Blanc, rises to 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's six times uh, the heat of molten lava. Oh. The explosion goes out in all directions at 3,400 miles per hour, which is four times the speed of sound. So this is basically a mini atomic bomb and not that many. It's about one-fifth the power. Got a two-mile-high mushroom cloud with basically the ship in it. The ship is atoms. Uh, we have like two chunks of the ship. The anchor went three miles one way, uh, and the cannon went four miles the other way. 
Four miles. Oh. And these things are, you know, a ton. You know, yeah. It's, you know, steel, obviously. Um, and that's about all we have left of the Mont Blanc, believe it or not. It's oh. otherwise just disintegrated. And if you're near there, you're evaporated, basically. Uh, the gas bubble that follows knocks down um, homes all over town. You see a house and poof, it's gone. Just pow. Um, it's incredible. Um, and human beings were sh- uh, sent half a mile in all directions. Those who land on the hill had a softer landing, and they survived incredibly. And we've got testimony from them in this book, what it's like and what you think when you're flying through the air half They were mile. just thrown, yeah. You're, you're one, one second you're looking at this ship, next second you're in the air, and you have no idea how or why. Wow. Uh, and you get yourself up, and you can't believe what had happened. And most of them are okay, incredibly. The, uh, not all. If you're on the hill, you're probably going to be okay. But if you're watching in the house near the window, you're blind. Yeah. You're blind or you're dead, yeah. uh, chances are. Yeah. Uh, and there are 500 people blinded by this. Uh, so in a split second, uh, 25,000 25, are homeless. Half the city is gone. It's Hiroshima. It's gone. It's I mean, gone. It, the pictures are stunning. Uh, it's, hard to, it's just hard to imagine this happening apart from a war zone. Uh, it's, it, and it, it does resemble uh, what we see at Hiroshima. Hiroshima yeah. and Nagasaki. You'll see a, a one wall of a brick building a mile away. Yeah. And a few trees with no leaves and no twigs. It's yeah. just incredible. So 25,000 are homeless, 9,000 are wounded, 1,600 are killed instantly. And now the question of the 9,000 wounded is how many of those can you save? And that's where this tragedy becomes almost a miracle of, yeah. of the compa- human capacity for courage and compassion yeah. kicks in. And this is, again, this is one reason I love the book uh, because it doesn't ignore – the human drama here, the the um, the uh, the way people are drawn together in tragedy. Let, tell me about Vince Coleman. Ah, well done, Al. Uh, my favorite man, Vince. I got a few favorites here. We'll get to, but uh, uh, Mr. Rogers of the old TV show, the childhood TV show that I was a kid yeah. growing up watching. Uh, something bad had happened when he was a kid, and his mom says said, "Look for the good people." After any kind of tragedy, good people arise. Yeah. They, they come to the surface and you see them helping. 9-11, we saw this, yeah. obviously. So we see this by the thousands in Halifax, and not just in Halifax, but in Boston, too. But one of my heroes is Vince Coleman. Um, there is somebody out in the water, a sailor, we don't know his name, uh, who heard the French crew talking about explosion, explosion. Now, I'm not a French speaker, Al, and maybe you're not either, but I'll figure that one out when you're rowing away right, from a burning yeah. ship. Um, so this guy figures, okay, that ship has got explosives on it. And only five people in the harbor, not on the ship, know about this, and they're not available. So he rushes into the shore. Uh, he runs up uh, Pier 6, which is near the burning ship, um, and he slams open Vince Coleman's uh, door. He is the train dispatcher about 100 feet away from Pier 6 where the ship wow. is burning. So you're right there. Yeah. And train dispatchers, air traffic controllers of that time, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the guy said, the sailor says, look, there are explosives on that ship, and it's going to blow up, and you need to tell people. So Coleman tells his crew, run. And he starts to run too, and then he stops because he remembers that the number 10 train from St. John to Brunswick is due in five minutes, and it's going to park right in front of Pier 6. And if it does that, it's gone. It's gone. So he stops and he thinks. And this is one of these great moments of truth that I know, especially people of faith, you, who knows when you wake up that morning what you're going to be tested right. with. You have <laughs> exactly. no idea. No, yeah. no one says it's going to happen to you. Yeah. Uh, but there you are. You have a split second to decide one thing or the other. Do you run for the hills and save yourself, which is a human enough response? Um, he stops and he runs back to his train dispatcher's office. 
and he starts furiously clacking off Morse code from his telegram. And the message is, uh, stop all trains. This is to all stations in the area. Stop all trains. Explosives on ship at Pier 6 burning and will explode. And then he adds, guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. Stop. And those are his last words. And it gets you. And he stopped the train. So right there he saves a few hundred. Uh, but crucially, after the uh, ship blows up, there are no wires available for four hours, not even an emergency one. So you can't get any messages out to the world by telegram or telephone, all you have back then. No cell phones, of course. Uh, so that message crucially gets around all over Canada and uh, New England, north of, you know, New England part of the United States, and gets to Boston at 10.13 in the morning an hour later. Oh, So this, this speeds up their that early. It's amazing. And it, that this part of the, uh, the miraculous part of the story. Yeah, yeah. It gets there, and otherwise you have four hours you can't get started on a recovery level. And wow. that turns out to be crucial time. Boston decides to send within an hour. They gather 100 people at Faneuil Hall, downtown Boston, famous, of course, for John Adams and Frederick yeah. Douglass and many others. John, um, hold it there. We've sure. got to take a break. Come yes. back and pick good, it up for Good Boston. news coming, I promise. <laughs> My guest, John U. Bacon, the great Halifax explosion. Good afternoon. My guest is John U. Bacon. He is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, most recently, The Great Halifax Explosion. We discussed this uh, event in the book a few about two weeks ago. But today, you might call this the special Christmas uh, edition because we want to focus uh, not only on the explosion, of course, but the remarkable response of people. We talked about the uh, dis- radio dispatcher, uh, Vince Coleman, his heroic sacrifice, which saves the lives of hundreds. And um, that message that he sends gets to Boston. And the relationship at that time, the relationship between the United States and Canada is not warm. Which is surprising, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> today, think about it today. It's our best neighbor by far. Yeah. It's the world's longest unguarded border. Um, and they are by far our biggest trading partners, not even close. Uh, China, Japan, and Germany don't buy as much stuff from the United States than Canada does combined, <laughs> uh, which is pretty amazing. But not in 1917. Uh, we fight against them in 1776, of course. 60,000 American colonists basically settle Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. They go north. They want to be loyal to the crown. Uh, so they're not our allies at that point. We fight again in 1812. Yep. Uh, they don't really support us in the Civil War. They're as close to the Confederates as they are to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1911, the Speaker of the House, the Paul Ryan of his day, which is this is hard to believe that uh, he gets on the floor and advocates for the annexation of Canada and receives loud cheers, Al. This is not a crazy idea. This is a wonderful idea. <laughs> That's 100 years ago, man. That's wow. very hard to fathom. Yeah. Uh, they're, again, our best, our best allies. But, uh, and despite that, this is the beautiful part. Politics, national interests, and so on take a backseat to pure humanity. Yeah. So human beings, and all they know is this, this one little cryptic telegram. Yeah. And that's enough for them to know these guys are in trouble. Because yeah. uh, we can't reach them. They try once, they try twice to telegram Halifax, no answer. Uh, the wires are down. So the third telegram from Governor McCall in Boston is, have not gotten response, sending help anyway. I love that. Yeah. Not gotten response, sending help anyway. This is a story of hope. When you're at your darkest hour and that you plea for help, even when you can't make it almost, yeah. Yeah. gets heard. Um, and they send, they meet at Faneuil Hall, and they decide within an hour 
100 guys, to send one train, then a second train, then a ship, then a second ship. In all, they sent 100 doctors, 300 nurses, and a million dollars worth of medical supplies, including anesthesia, which they're running out of. Oh. Uh, and it all arrives two days later, which is as fast as you can get there, yeah. through yeah. a blizzard. Through a blizzard. Oh, that's right. We didn't mention the blizzard. <laughs> Worst blizzard. How about that? <laughs> Worst blizzard in uh, 10 years, which in Halifax is saying something. Uh, <laughs> 16 inches of snow. We know this today in Michigan, of course. 16 inches of snow, 40-mile-per-hour winds, and the train fights through this gigantic snowbank for two hours with shovels, with local people digging, because Kaprichesky says, if we're in bad shape in this train, they're in worse shape in Halifax. We have to find a way. Yeah. And they do. It, it, it's, again, remembering that this is December, you've got the blizzard, You've got people walking around like zombies uh, after they're shell shocked, uh, right? And they're they're injured. I mean, people without limbs. Mm-hmm. Um, their <clears throat> bodies, I imagine, all around. There are bodies. I mean, like like mannequins, basically. Yeah. And everyone describes this. You see them hanging from telephone poles. You see them, you know, in the oddest positions. And and seconds earlier, we're all watching the ship. Now, <clears throat> the school, uh, whether. At least the, the public school there, uh, I think, is I forgot Richmond the name school. Of it now. Richmond School. It's Richmond School. Is that turned into the morgue? I know one uh, of the no, schools was not, turned into uh, the morgue. Richmond School is blown up. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Okay. Uh, St. Joseph School is mostly gone. Um, although there's the the school, the headmistress there is something else. You got to read about her. She yeah. she tells the people we're not leaving. Uh, we have, you know after the panic and so on said we're staying here. We're helping everyone we can. Uh-huh. It's a wonderful little scene. Um, but anyway, so they set up Sh- uh, Shabukto School not too far away. Yeah, that's what I'm that into a morgue. Shibukto. Right, uh, and that yeah. is your last. You start at the hospitals. You start at their homes. Then you start looking at the hospitals. Then you start looking at other recovery areas. YMCA turn, gets turned into a hospital, basically. Um, and then you've got the Shibukto School as the morgue, and that's your last stop, and you don't want to go there. But it's still better, those who could not find their loved ones, to find them three or four days later there actually provided some sense of peace that you would not get if you never found your loved ones. And 400 were never found. Yeah. I mean, disintegrated, basically. How uh, – in a situation like this where it's it's – Complete chaos. Everybody's disoriented. Who, who organizes things? I mean, who are the people, the kind of people who step forward and begin to do something to in- inject order mm-hmm. back into this chaos? They were lucky on a few fronts. I don't hate to use that term about this, but <laughs> afterwards in some ways they were. Uh, the deputy mayor, a guy named Caldwell, um, he's a clothing store salesman. He's not at all equipped for this. The mayor's out of town. He gets knocked over a mile away by this explosion, and when he stands himself up, he realizes, I'm in charge, <laughs> <laughs> which is not the plan. Uh, and you never know in a crisis who's going to stand up. You right. really don't. This guy is – there's not one thing in his background that tells you that he can handle this. He's, he's a clothing store salesman. Nothing wrong with that. But it's <laughs> not, it does not put you in charge of a relief effort of 9,000 wounded. <laughs> right. um, not the same jobs. He, within an hour, sets up shop at the Halifax City Hall, which has no windows. There are no windows within 50 miles. Blizzard's coming through. And he gathers 20 local leaders. Anybody can. There are no phones, no telegrams. You can't communicate with anybody. So he just you know, pulls them off the streets, basically, and uh, grabs who he can. Within 45 minutes, Al, they set up 12 committees, the Relief Committee, the Hospital Committee, the Orphan Committee. Um, it goes on and on and on. The School Committee, the Clothing, Fuel um, roads, you name it. They do all this within 45 minutes. And oh. as one wag said, they accomplished more in 45 minutes than they had in 45 years. 
<laughs> so, but I got to tell you what it really was, though. Uh, the government can only do so much. I mean, how much is left? Yeah, right. Um, right. What you had in Halifax were about 50,000 people still okay. Um, and you relied on them. And you know the story about the Good Samaritan better than I do. Yeah. Uh, there actually is a group called the Good Samaritans in this group who yeah. do what you expect. You know the story. You, sure. You walk on the road. I think it's Jericho or um, – Yeah, the Jericho Road. You know right. better than I do, of course. Yeah. And the first guy passes the uh, poor guy who's been hurt. The second guy passes. And the third guy, um, the Samaritan, who's – they're not friends with the Jews at the time, I don't think. No, not at all. And like Boston and Halifax, you say it doesn't matter. Right. You're in need. Yeah. And so yeah. you do the right thing. Yeah. And that that story is told – a thousand times in the story. It's and that I'm getting a little choked up right now, Al. You've got two fifteen year old kids. They've got a pregnant woman with a baby on the second floor of a burning house. And fifteen year old kids, you're walking to school, man, and an hour later you're doing this. Wow. And you tell her you have to trust us. You have to trust us. We'll catch your baby. And she's waiting, 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 the the flames are right there. And so what do you do? You have to toss your baby. Oh. And so, exactly. And I've got a kid now, and this is unfathomable. Man, these are two yeah. 15-year-old kids you don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. So they're yeah. walking past something. And you toss the baby. And the kid catches him. <sighs> and the baby survives. And then she jumps, and she's about seven months pregnant. And the two boys both catch her, and her baby is delivered two months later. Oh. So it's, it's, this is a story of Good Samaritans. My mom drilled it into my head. And this is part of the Catholic faith, of course, that – your character is what you do when you think no one's watching. Yeah, right. Uh, it's not about getting rewarded or getting rich no. or getting you know, anything else. Who it's, are you? You yeah. do the right thing because it's the right thing. Right. Um, and that story is told a thousand times here. Yeah. It's, it really is. Uh, it, again, it's, it, the way you, you tell the story, too, this really does come out. The, the capacity for the, the human spirit to respond in situations like this where uh, they – identify with those who are suffering around them and they they want to act uh and it uh i think i mean what what the the devastation here is so overwhelming that you it's hard to imagine we we've all probably been in some difficult situations but the devastation here is so overwhelming that you you just can't imagine how this can come together again and i think I think many people would have laid down and just died. And some did. Yeah. I mean, some when they're you know, that bad of shape, some lost the fight. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's going to happen. And there are you know, a few folks who are gougers who took advantage of the situation financially and realized that plywood's in great demand and so is glass. Yeah. 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 Um, so a few of that, but very, very little of that. That's amazing. Uh, and the loot, we have two examples of looting, two. You know, uh, that's extraordinary. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and th- these people were... Unprepared for this, and yet their character beforehand prepared them for this, is my take. Boston sends this, uh, again, contingent of uh, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, assistants. And when they, when they arrived, uh, how quickly were they able to get moving? It's amazing. They got there at Saturday morning, 6 a.m., and again, they should not have gotten there through the blizzard at all. So Montreal trains, Toronto trains were held up. Boston gets through. And again, this is not your... Not your ally at that point, so that's pretty amazing. Um, a guy named Thomas Riddell, um, he's a great Halifax historian. He was about 12 when this happened, my grandfather's age. <laughs> and, uh, and he wrote about this the rest of his life. Great, very good writer. He says, doctors and nurses arrived from outlying provincial, provincial towns, and substantial help was on the way from Montreal and Toronto. But the first and most valuable assistance 
came from that ancient foe, foe owl, <laughs> beyond the Bay of Fundy, Boston. And when they do, everyone starts crying. These are tough Canadians. These are so you got about yeah. 5,000 soldiers in town because of World War I. And they're all about to ship out, and they don't ship yeah. out, of course. Uh, these are very tough stoic guys. When they see the American flag, when they see the 48 stars back then, when you see the train come in, here's what happens. Uh, Joseph Bars, my, one of my big heroes, yeah. Yeah. He says, I tell you, we'll never be able to say enough about the wonderful help the states have sent. The response was so spontaneous and everything done even before it was asked for. It brought tears to all our eyes when they came and told us a little of what had been done by the United States. And then he adds, you know, we've always been a travel contemptuous of the United States on account of their prolonged delay in entering the war, but never again. They can have anything I've got, and I don't think I feel any differently from anyone down here either. Yeah. It's worth noting, Joseph Barr's great-grandfather was the greatest privateer in Canadian history, the most wanted man <laughs> in America during the War of 1812. So they're not a pro-American family. <laughs> he goes to the University of Michigan, marries an American from Battle Creek, becomes an American citizen, right. and raises his kids in Chicago. So this is the power of kindness and great compassion. And, uh, he he ba- plays Boston, an important ba- role in, in Michigan hockey. And he ends up starting the University of Michigan hockey team. <laughs> That's how I found out about the guy. <laughs> That's how I found out about the whole thing, Al. I didn't know anything about this. Yeah. Uh, this is an amazing story. So good Samaritans everywhere and tears when they see the American help. I want to um, come back. Barr's, uh, the, the trajectory of Barr's life is fascinating. And uh, he starts out, of course, as uh, wanting to be uh, a war hero, uh, a real champion. That's right. And the, his experience in war changes his, his, uh, his evaluation of uh, what's important. But I want to come back on the other side of the break and just uh, tell you tell us where he ends up. Sure. Because uh, I agree with you. He's he's one of the most fascinating characters in the book. So, I appreciate that. Talking with John U. Bacon, the author most recently of The Great Halifax Explosion, a World War One story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. And uh, we're going to continue right in a moment. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Crested. With me, John U. Bacon, author most recently of The Great Halifax Explosion, a World War I story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. We uh, told uh, the story a few weeks ago, but wanted to return to it kind of uh, during Advent to look at the Good Samaritans who show up throughout the story. We were talking earlier about uh, Joseph Bars, Ernst Bars. This is one of the most fascinating figures, I think, in the book in that he goes through so many changes. Tell us a little bit about his trajectory. Sure. Um, one of my favorite characters, he's how I got to this story, which is mainly in Like My grandfather told me about this when I was a kid, but researching my first book, I came across Joseph Bars, and that's when it all came true. Uh, born in 1892 in India, his parents were Baptist missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, his great-great-grandfather was a privateer in 1776 <laughs> against the U.S., <laughs> Um, his great-grandfather was the greatest privateer in all of Canadian history. He ransacked 60 American ships. Uh, that's, that's league-leading stuff right there. Um, so he's a very wanted man. Uh, his grandfather started at Acadia University in Wolfville. His parents are missionaries. He's born in India. His mom has complications with the pregnancy. Okay. And very rudimentary medical help, as you can imagine, in India in 1892. Right. Yeah. She almost dies. Uh, but she survives, but that is her only child, which puts the stakes, makes the stakes quite quite a bit higher for 
Uh, when he comes back to Wolfville, he starts reading at age four. He's a precocious guy. Um, his dad also he runs the uh, Baptist church as well as the local grocery store. This okay. is small-town Canada, man. You have <laughs> two jobs in that town, um, leading your flock as well as selling them groceries. But uh, he's a great salesman at the grocery store. He's a great hockey player, football player, uh, baseball player, and boxer. He's only five foot eight, but he's a very tough guy. Um, graduates at 19 cum laude, goes to uh, Montreal to earn his fortune, and he's doing very well with Imperial Oil. But it's a, it's a worldly situation. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, great social life, good money, good power and prestige and all that, but he's not fulfilled. Yeah. He's from a family of missionaries, from guys who start universities, and whether you agree with being a privateer or not, you certainly have a sense of mission. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you're, you're not half committed at that point. So he's from these very passionate people, and he does not feel that passion. So World War I breaks out, and he thinks, okay, this, this is going to be it. So he joins World War I, and as he tells his parents, as you can tell, I am full of this thing. He sends up to be a machine gunner, which you don't want to be because you're the first guy they're going to try they're to hit. After, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If you're hitting them, they want to hit you. Um, so he does that, and he's all gung-ho. Uh, and then after a year of this, he's lost 80% of his unit. Uh, the, the devastation of World War I is just incredible. It's like <sighs> Vietnam times something. Yeah. And nothing gets resolved either, kind of like Vietnam. It's, yeah. it's, no one really wins it. Um, I mean, then, you can lose uh, half your, half your uh, unit uh, trying to cover 100 yards of dirt. Exactly right. Yeah. In fact, you, you lose millions of lives to move that line back and forth about a mile or two. It's, yeah. nothing is, it's a tug-of-war game that no one can win, yeah. uh, and lives are being lost left and right. So 80% of his unit is out, and he writes his parents too candidly, in my opinion. Uh, he gets it out under the censors, um, saying that you know the guy next to me got shot yesterday, and the chef got it the day before, uh-huh. and he goes on and on. And if that's your only child is in the trenches of France— that cannot be good to read. Right, right. Um, and finally, he says on May 31st of 1916, um, we, all, we are all heartily sick of the whole show. So the gung-ho spirit is gone. Yeah. Um, they want to get home if they can. And uh, I said, Buddy says at least it can't get any worse. But it does. Two days later, he gets hit with a German shell, flown across the field into a tank, we think. Uh, his friends think that he's killed. He's not. He's paralyzed. Um, and his left foot does not work. <clears throat> he spends half a year in a body cast, uh, goes back to Nova Scotia to recover. And his doctors tell him his left foot will never recover. He's, you know, uh, he'll be, have a cane his whole life and so on. And he refuses to listen. He's pretty young, still pretty strong. He uses his cane every day in the snowy streets, and he makes himself you know, get around. Yeah. Then the ship blows up. And uh, his mentor in, in uh, Wolfville, about an hour away from Halifax, uh, says, you know, he's a, he's a doctor. Dr. Elliot says, you need to come with me. So he returns to what is now, as you said earlier, basically a war zone in Halifax. Yeah. The city's half gone. And he says the destruction was unbelievable. Uh, anyway, what he says is that it is so – he said, in all my time at World War I, I never saw anything as absolute or complete as the devastation I see in Halifax. And that's after three years of bombing it, it, yeah. in France. Yeah. Uh, and he said there's not one sticker stone standing on another. It is more gruesome than World War I. Yeah. And that changes him. And he gets stationed at Campbell Hospital. All he knows is first aid. But it's all hands on deck. By the, right. end, of, by the end of right. three days with no sleep, he is performing minor surgeries without anesthesia because they've run out until the Bostonians show up. Uh, and that's why he's so grateful to see them. And he, this tough dude himself, he starts crying too. Yeah. Um, so that's how big it is. And like I said, he ends up going to the United States, going to college, starting Michigan's hockey program while in medical school. The train ride home from this, he decides he does not want to be a businessman in Montreal anymore. He doesn't want to be a soldier. 
uh, does not want to run his parents' grocery store. He wants to be a doctor and yeah. heal others because they're the ones who came running and did the healing when they needed it most. He said, yeah. I want to be on that side. Yeah. He's killed people in World War I, and now he wants to save them. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it, again, one of those uh, biographies that um, makes you uh, proud. People are able to change and adapt to circumstances. I like uh, that. I mean, he's got a wide range of responses through this whole right. story. Um, this story, we're so tired hearing about the bad guys. Yeah. You know, the yeah. gunmen, the terrorists, uh, the sexual predators these days, that's in the news a lot, obviously. Right. Uh, this is a celebration of ordinary people yeah. doing extraordinary things. Yeah. And we have this capacity. It makes you proud to be an American. And it makes me proud to be a human being on top of that, that yeah. we, are, we are still good people. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, the... Um, how does it work out with the uh, aftermath in, in terms of uh, who bears responsibility for this? Um, that gets complicated. They have four legal cases uh, that run two and a half years. Uh, and the first two, the Mont Blanc is found mainly guilty, which I think is not fair. Uh, the French crew is anti-French sentiment at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that figured in, I think. Um, and then uh, then another two events in Halifax, two court cases. We get out of Halifax, it gets a little different. Ottawa, it's about a draw. Uh, the court case in the Canadian capital. Then they go to London, which is the capital of the British Empire, which Canada is still a part of at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they call it basically a draw also, but find more fault with the emo, which I think yeah. is fair. Okay. Uh, where Mount Blanc is guilty is not the accident. It's afterwards, they yeah. did nothing to help the victims. They never expressed any remorse, which is pretty hard to imagine. When you've got people from Boston and Chicago and St. Louis training in yeah. to help people they don't know, the people who were partly responsible for this, right. certainly, uh, never expressed anything. Yeah. So the range of human experience, as we know, is quite broad. So that makes it all the more impressive that those who had no attachment to these people found themselves attached to these people yeah. and helped them. Yeah. Uh, how, how do, what do we know about the, um, the uh, were there four churches there? Four churches in yeah. this little neighborhood of Richmond. Yeah. And they're all blown up. They're all yet, destroyed. But the past, the the, re, the priest of St. Joseph's and yeah. the other three pastors all know each other very well and all get along quite well. Yeah. Uh, they're basically the community leaders. Um, they all lost somebody in their family, and they all had to do double duty now. You have yeah. to take care of your family, and you have to take care of your flock. Right. And right. really, they also were bigger than that, too. They were ecumenical in this sense. They yeah. took care of everybody they could. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they often convened on this front. All their homes are gone. Um, and that... Gets me choked up. Also, these are guys who could have looked out for their families alone. That'd be enough, uh, or your flock, and they looked out for everybody. And that, to me, is while you're suffering, that is a great show of moral strength. Yeah. Things begin to settle down. How many are finally dead? How many are wounded for life? Uh, how many recover? Uh, we mentioned earlier that 1,600 were killed instantly. Uh, so nothing you can do for them. Um, and then you've got 9,000 wounded. And then the next question is, with no facilities, everything blown up, uh, not enough help at first, what do you do? How many of those 9,000 are going to survive? The incredible thing is, of those 9,000, only 400 died. That's extraordinary. At a, a 90, that really is A 96% success rate when everything's blown up. I mean, you don't have a window in town, and the blizzard comes in. So you can see the help of the Good Samaritans. You can see the help of the Bostonians. Um, a guy from Battle Creek working at the Kellogg's uh, Battle Creek Sanatorium decides he needs to help. Takes a four-day train trip and spends a month in Halifax going door-to-door making house calls. Uh, you see this again and again and again. So the, this, is, this is basically Downton Abbey meets Dunkirk. It's, <laughs> it's the same air as Downton Abbey, and, the, and this should not have worked. Yeah. Uh, this should not have worked. And, and 
again, 96% success rate, that's, that is mind-boggling. Yeah. Now, an event of this sort doesn't get forgotten by those who uh, went through it. But how come I never heard of this event I know. until your book? I know. In your defense, my grandfather, my Canadian grandfather, who was 12 when it happened, and he was in the next door, the province next door, New Brunswick, which is right next door to Nova Scotia. He was telling me about this when I was a kid, about the cannon flying three miles this way and the uh, anchor flying four miles that way. And I didn't think he was lying to me. My grandfather was an honest man. Yeah. Uh, but I never heard it anywhere else until I discovered the story of Joseph Bars through University of Michigan hockey program, <laughs> about which I wrote a book you know, about 18 right, years ago. Right. So wh- why don't I know about this? So yeah. in your defense, Americans, <laughs> it's 100 years ago. It's World War I, which you don't know very well. It's about Canada, which you don't study as closely. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, and if if the ship had blown up in Gravesend Bay, New York, that would be nine eleven a hundred years ago. Yeah. We would have known about it. Yeah. Uh, but what's beautiful about the story, uh, even if Bostonians themselves don't always know about this, Halifax for decades now has spent a hundred and eighty thousand dollars of their own money to search for the greatest Christmas tree in the province every year. And if, <laughs> if it's on your land, you're proud to donate it. Um, Fifty foot spruce, and they have a ceremony for this. They load it on a truck. They uh, bring it down to Boston where they stand it up in Boston Common, which is the nation's oldest park, 1634. Yep. Uh, they light it in a big ceremony, and uh, and they feel good about this. And when I explained to one of them a year ago, I said, I hate to tell you, but most folks in Boston have no idea who, <laughs> who's giving them the tree or why. Right. And her line to me was, I thought, beautiful. She said, it doesn't matter. Why do we have to stop saying thank you? Right. And I thought, that's pretty doggone good. So it's a good Christmas story. And perhaps I probably have a break coming up. I'm not sure. But we've got some good Christmas stories as well. Yeah. So. Uh, we've got uh, about a minute left, John. Okay, here, so. here it goes. Uh, how do you save Christmas? It's, this happens on December 6th. Half the town is gone. And the kids are worried, the little ones and so on, that Santa Claus won't be able to make it because you don't have a chimney anymore and the hospitals don't have a chimney. So how, how's it going to work? They organized Santa Claus Limited. Uh, they wanted to, wanted to raise uh, uh, $5,000 for 10,000 kids, for a gift for all these kids. They raised $13,000. This is a town with no money at that time. So Marjorie Drysdale, she's an eight-year-old girl. She'd asked her parents for a popular, expensive doll, but they didn't have much money. They're working class. So she did not think she would get this. One day before the blast, the curiosity got the best of her. So she peeked under the tree, peeled back a corner of the wrapping paper, and saw that her parents had, in fact, bought her the special, expensive doll. A day later, their house was flattened by the explosion and burned to cinders, killing both parents. But Marjorie uh, was always grateful, years later, for her indiscretion, knowing how far her parents had been willing to go to make her happy. She knew her parents loved her already. Yeah. But that doll, that remember that doll, was the constant reminder of how deeply her parents loved her. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, again, this event occurred on December 6th, uh, and, Dece- and yet Christmas Day remained Christmas Day. They pulled it off, and, and many kids got, received more Christmas Day than they had previously. Yeah. Now, again, this does not erase what happened. And everyone's, you know, you, you're, at Christmas, you're thinking about loved ones, thinking about people you've oh, lost, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Uh, and yet, they said, when we needed a boost most, it arrived, yeah. and it arrived from all over. This event has had a lasting impact on international relations uh, between the U.S. and Canada, uh, still acknowledged and uh, celebrated by the citizens of Halifax. Uh, it has, uh, again, shown us the destructive potential of munitions and war and uh, how, uh, even if you're not on the battlefield, uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, war can have scarring impact. Uh, and and we've been lucky that way in North America. It almost never gets to us. Nine eleven did, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it's very rare. These, these wars have been fought elsewhere. Yeah, and, and it also again shows us the extraordinary uh, potential for compassion uh, outreach in the midst of the most profound suffering. And I, I just love the kind the kindness of strangers here is a tremendous theme uh, throughout this. I I found, I found myself. Deeply moved uh, by it, and I thank you so much, John, for the book. Al, thank you, and thanks to your listeners. We'll talk again. Thank you, Al. John Ubakum, The Great Halifax Explosion. It's a World War I story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. I'm Al Cresta.